1956 and 1971, the FBI ran a counterintelligence program named COINTELPRO that was initiated by J. Edgar Hoover. COINTELPRO mainly targeted civil rights leaders such as Martin Luther King, and it's commonly understood that this was an abuse of its surveillance power in a manner to suppress a peaceful movement. So uh, I would like to ask Mr. Chair unanimous consent to enter this report into the record which is black identity extremists likely motivated to target law enforcement officers. I believe earlier you said you were not familiar with the report. Is that correct? Well, I haven't read it. I know um, some of the alleged uh, targeting of, of officers um, by Okay, so I, I would group. like to know, and I'll ask you about that in a minute. So you um, are somewhat familiar with it. Who had the power in your department to order a report like this? I'm not sure how that report got ordered. I don't believe I explicitly uh, approved it or directed it. Okay, so uh, you're not, you haven't necessarily read the report, but you are familiar with the term black identity extremists? Well, I think so, yes. So can you tell me what that term means to you? Do you believe that there is a movement of African Americans that identify themselves as black identity extremists, and what does that movement do? Well, I'd be interesting to see the conclusions of that report, but I'm aware uh, that there are groups that uh, do have an extraordinary commitment to their um, racial identity, and some have transformed themselves even into violent activists. Are so, you aware of white uh, organizations that do this as well? Given that white supremacy is well-documented, well-researched movements such as the neo-Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, etc., are they white identity extremists? I'm, I didn't follow that question, please, again. Um, is there a term or a report on white identity extremists? You mentioned you were familiar with black people who identify with their racial identity. Yes, but it's not coming to me at this moment. Not coming to you? <laughs> Uh, it's um, certainly a group such as the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, the and then the skinhead movements, but there's a racial identity white movements uh, that have been identified for sure. So has the FBI done a report on white identity extremists that are likely motivated to target law enforcement officers? Um, Is there I'm such not a aware of that. Okay, uh, are you aware of a group called the Sovereign Citizens? I've heard that group, yes. And I believe that the Sovereign Citizens is primarily a white organization that absolutely has targeted police officers and killed police officers. You're not aware of that? I'm not aware of all their crimes, but I know they are a group that's um, uh, known to have violent tendencies. Could you name an African-American organization that have committed violent acts against police officers? Could you name one today? In this report, they name organizations from 30, 40 years ago, but can you name of one today that has targeted uh, police officers in a violent manner? I believe I could, but I would want to be uh, to confirm uh, that and submit it to you in writing. But I believe we had within the last year or so, four police officers killed by a group that some have described as uh, extremists. So what has happened is, is that there have been a couple of incidents in which African Americans did kill police officers who were not associated with a black organization. And so one, for example, in Baton Rouge was associated with Sovereign Citizens, which is primarily a white group. So you should know that there's a lot of concern in the community, especially from organizations such as Black Lives Matter. By the way, would you consider Black Lives Matter a uh, black identity extremist group? Um, I'm not able to comment on that. I'm not a, I have not so declared it. 
So you should know that a lot of activists around the country are very concerned that we're getting ready to repeat a very uh, sad chapter of our history where people who are rightfully protesting what they consider to be an injustice in their community, which is their uh, relationship uh, with police officers, are now being targeted and labeled as extremists and are going through periods of surveillance and harassment. So today, ladies and gentlemen, we're here with Rakim Balagoon. Now, this brother was arrested under the Black Identity Extremist label, which we all said on social media is a bunch of BS and just targets black people for identifying who they are. So Rakim, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So Rakim, when I first heard about your arrest, I couldn't believe it. And I started looking into what you had going on. You was you know, definitely practicing your Second Amendment rights, right. you know, helping other people train in the community. And I couldn't understand why were you targeted. Um, so why do you think you were targeted by the FBI? I think that um, overall was targeted due to the um, activity of my organization, Guerrilla Mainframe, um, the things that we was doing in the community and the consistency um, that we have had since 2008 of being consistent with certain programs such as our food, clothes and shelter program, which, you know, we provide uh, those resources to um, homeless people and people that come from um, sub-poverty sub um, areas of Dallas. Um, also, we have another program called um, Gorilla Mainframe Martial Art Program. And that program is a program where we're allowed to get the children, you know, the women, the men from the community, consolidate us, you know, we work out um, based off of concepts of self-defense, um, community involvement and uh, fitness. Um, also, you know, we have other programs such as Geronimo Tactical, um, which is a self-defense program based off of firearms and uh, promoting the Second Amendment. And, you know, um, Gorilla Mainframe, we are co-founders, I myself particularly, of the Huey P. Newton Gun Club, which was started here in Dallas. Okay, so Based off of what I'm hearing, you know, you're practicing your Second Amendment rights, you're teaching self-defense, you're feeding the community. I still don't understand why you were targeted. Well, you know, based off of studying the BIE FBI document, it seems like the FBI is trying to foster a narrative of that there is some potential threat among black people who are unapologetically black and proud. And what they're trying to do is criminalize us and make us seem as a threat to society, you know, which we're not. And so they have to create that narrative by, you know, using certain situations from um, abstract, um, you know, shootings that have happened in police with individuals around the country that have nothing to do with each other, you know, but they try to say this ideology. But the thing about it is the FBI-BIE memo does not pinpoint an ideology. They use very broad terms such as separatists. Well, they're all type of black separatists. You know, you have black separatists 
who does not believe in any form of violence, you know. So even being black separatists, it breaks down to different ideologies and all of them do not support um, armed resistance, you know, to that level. But this is something they have to foster and put fear amongst, most importantly, the, the different local police forces all around the country. Because that's who they send that memo to, you know. That memo, they could care less how we feel when the police agencies get it all around the country and it comes from the FBI. They have no choice but to take it serious. And so, if a police officer pull over a black man who is wearing red, black, and green or wearing a dashiki or may have a Malcolm X hat on or maybe a bumper sticker or whatever, some type of uh, paraphernalia that reflects being black and proud, you know, they can use that as a narrative. If that situation go wrong, they can say, hey, look at this person. Look at his previous Facebook post, you know. So um, this is the reason why they're doing this. They're trying to create a narrative to where they can attack the black and light and conscious community. Well, when I read a lot of things concerning your arrest, um, there was claiming, accusations, of course, that you had made a Facebook post mm-hmm. about um, the shooting with Michael Johnson and that's why they started to kind of start telling you. This is what I read. Well, they was telling me um, prior to that post. Um, they was telling me since 2016, um, at least early 2016. So um, that was prior to Michael um, Johnson shooting up um, downtown Dallas. Um, actually, that post that I made um, acknowledging Michael Johnson for the sacrifice that he did for his people, no matter if we agree with it or not, you know, we have to acknowledge it as a sacrifice for the black Holocaust. And so that's all I did. And two, they used that in my um, bond hearing. My case, I wasn't criminalized because of that Facebook post. I was criminalized because they knew that I was advocating for firearms. So they tried to say that I was illegally possessing a firearm, which they knew I wasn't. But the thing about the Facebook page, I'm, I'm sorry, the Facebook post is that when I was immediately when I was arrested, I was rushed into a courtroom to stand in front of a, a federal magistrate judge with a public pretender next to my side. I have not had any opportunities to make any phone calls, contact anybody, or even contact my own attorney. Okay? And so, immediately, uh, I'm fighting with a public pretender. I just met a federal public pretender. I'm fighting for um, bun, you know? And, you know, honestly, I thought that they was going to probably let me go on my own reconnaissance. You know, but they didn't. They denied me bun. And they said that Facebook post was a reflection of my thoughts. And that made me a threat to society because they felt that if they let me go under the case that they had, that I was going to so happen, guess, get mad and kill police. You know, so 
They used that to justify denying my bun. Because they knew if they can deny my bun, even they they knew that the chances of that case that they giving me not sticking. So if they deny my bun, if the case don't stick, I'm going to sit at least six months going through the whole federal um, court proceedings before a judge really just look at my case. Six months, that's enough to, uh, you know, destabilize my life, you know, lose vehicles, homes, jobs and um, credit and other things. So that was the whole point. It was a whole it was a big strategy behind that. So you did what, five months or six months? I did pretty much about six months. About six months. So you go before the judge and what does the judge say? Well, I didn't go before the judge. Um, I actually was released and through pretrial um, proceedings. Um, I filed a pretrial motion to dismiss the indictment based off that the the charge that they was using to detain me was this illegal possession of a firearm based off of, uh, a charge that I received in Tennessee back in 2005. Uh, was not equivalent to the federal statute, which would um, deny me from my Second Amendment right. And so this is what happened. When I was 21, I was living in Memphis, Tennessee, and I got into an altercation with somebody I was dating. This altercation did not uh, require any uh, physical damage or any uh, physical interaction. Um, it was an altercation of a disagreement. Um, once the police responded, the, the police did not charge me with the right charge. And when I got to court, you know, um, one, I, my finances was exhausted at that time. I was uneducated um, about the criminal justice proceedings, and I just trusted the uh, public. Uh, pretended that they gave me and he told me hey you know you sign this document we'll let you out today just sign this document you know and so you know what they're like if you don't you're gonna have to pay money get out then you have to go to trial that's you know then if you if you bond out they're gonna expect you to buy your own attorney you got to go to trial that's gonna be a lot of money you can just sign this paper and leave today you know so hey that sound if you you know when you're detained when you're trying to get out, you know, hey, if all I got to do is sign this paper. So I did that. I signed the paper, you know, and I accepted a charge that I didn't do. And it was an actual domestic violence charge. It wasn't the actual situation that actually happened. OK, so that what my pretrial motion was based on. Um, I feel that the FBI, they definitely knew that they had a loophole of detaining me. And they knew that it was some confusion. So it was going to take time to for all the confusion to be sought out. But during that whole time, I'm sitting in jail. So when you I'm listening to this case and you're talking about gun rights, mm -hmm. Second Amendment, did the National Rifle Association contact you? No, never. Not one time? Never. Because we always talking about, you know, they always mentioning gun rights and fighting for the Second Amendment. 
And we say a lot online that the NRA isn't there to defend the gun rights of black people. Uh, they're really only there to defend the rights of white people. Well, it's gun privileges. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what um, NRA promote is gun privilege. It's not about Second Amendment rights for everybody. It's about privileges. And we already know who those privileges for, uh, mainly white people. And, and, and it's a class privilege as well, upper class citizens of other races as well. So um, NRA didn't reach out to me at all or, and did not correspond to any media that reached out to them. On my perspective, but who did reach out was the National African American Gun Association, NAGA. They did reach out and they did um, provide uh, financial support for uh, um, legal representation. Okay, now also you served in the military, correct? Yes, I was in the United States Marine Corps. You being a veteran of the mm -hmm. U.S. Marine Corps, how did you feel that seeing your country come against you for teaching gun rights? helping your community, doing something that's honorable and that we all talk about what black men should be doing. Right. How, how did you feel about that? Well, it just reconfirmed what I saw within the military, which was racism from white men, you know. And so the Marine Corps, the military, you can say it's like a federal level of government, you know, just like the FBI is. And, you know, when you look at the FBI statistics, you know, um, very few white, I mean, very few black people work for the FBI. You know, they have a history of being a racist entity, you know, you know, from COINTELPRO and even prior to COINTELPRO. And, you know, we have we have watched the FBI for so long um, actually watch us, you know, be attacked by racist um, mobs and policemen and not intervene. But as soon as we talk about a culture of self-defense and try to organize anything of that nature, the FBI is there to intercept us. We see white militia groups all over the country doing exactly possibly what you're doing, training, teaching people like the three percenters, Oath Keepers. Mm -hmm. Many of they, they show up with their guns. They go to Charlottesville. They go wherever they want to go and not be bothered. So how can they get legally get away with that? But your group is targeted because they're patriotic, you know, and we we know that what they promote is the interest of, you know, right wing conservative white people. And, you know, we promote the interest of um, poor working class people, you know, that, you know, who work every day and still struggle. And so. You know, when you look at um, federal level government, who do they relate to the most? You know, um, the the American minority working class or the, you know, mass, the masses, which is, you know, white middle class individual. And so they have the privilege, the white privilege and the patriotic privilege to do that. Just like they had the same privilege to show up in South Dallas in 2016, uh, a group called BEAR, Bureau of Anti-Islamic Relations. They tried to show up to Mosque number 48 in Dallas, in South Dallas, and 
we was there to meet them with our firearms. And so it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty, um, it was a pretty intense standoff situation. And that white, um, right wing, uh, extremist group was escorted and supported by Dallas police department. Yeah. I've always said that he all in cahoots with each other. I mean, white supremacy is connected everywhere. Mm -hmm. And no matter what we do, we're always a threat. We always looked at as, you know, suspicious. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're a brother that's, you know, standing up in the community, trying to teach. And we have a a great spirit of cowardice in our community right now. I know you see that. Right. Um, A guy like you that's that's standing up, a guy that's even went to jail trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, What could you say about that spirit of cowardice in the community? Well, you know, George Jackson said it the best. And. The book Blood in My Eye. He said that cowardice taking too, I mean, he said patience taking too far as cowardice, you know. And, you know, our community have been way too patient with such a racist beast, you know. So, you know, it's definitely, you know, time for a masculine element in our community to stand up. And, and, you know, take responsibility, you know. So the, the entity of white supremacy, it scares a lot of black people. Let's call it what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, some of us would rather be subjected to it. I would say a lot of us would rather have, you know, the white man's foot on our neck mm-hmm. and live our life that way instead of trying to just stand up and not so much attack people, but just stand up and just set our community in order. Because what if men like yourself, you know, go and patrol the communities and, you know, get certain elements out? Why is it you think that they would have an issue with you trying to patrol the black community? The reason why I think they have an issue with me trying to patrol the black community or just the community trying to patrol the, the black community trying to patrol the black community is because they don't want to black community trying to patrol the black community. They want us to be content um, is where we're at. Um, They want us to be content with not determining our own destiny and just pretty much being reactionary. And so when they see a proactive element in place that is that has the synergy to actually move forward, they become threatened because they they start to look at it threatens white privilege directly, you know, because eventually at some point they know we're going to eventually start making demands that they don't want to fork out, you know, and so they want to stop it wise early, you know, because they've seen the stories, you know, they've seen the stories so many times, you know, from, you know, Black Panthers to Marcus Garvey, so many different movements and groups, the Nation of Islam, and they know what happens if you allow a black group to, you know, organize and actually get a momentum? So out of all that that's happened to you, has anything changed in how you move? Mm. Yes. The only thing changed is I'm more patient when it comes to um, black people, you know, um, I, I definitely understand the dire need for black unity 
and for black solidarity. Because, you know, right now we're definitely uh, under attack. And, you know, prior to that, you know, I was about unity and solidarity. But at the same time, you know, I didn't have the patience to deal, you know, with certain elements, even within the black resistance movement. And so understanding that right now we're in a situation where war is waged on us indirectly. And we have to really unify our causes and establish some type of network and a grid, you know. So if they come after a brother in Chicago, if they go after a brother in Atlanta, if they go after a brother in Oakland, you know, we won't be um, isolated incidents, but we all can be on one accord in uh, providing um, support and things of that nature. And so other than that, a lot of people expected me to get out and and be all spooked and to get off Facebook. I'm still on Facebook. Uh, if I have anything to say that may not be um, popular to the white community, I'm still going to say it. Um, and that's just what it is. You know, uh, I, I put it like this. Nobody cares about our feelings. Nobody cared about our feelings when Trayvon Martin was killed, and even still today, uh, uh, George Zimmerman still is making a mockery of killing that young man. And nobody cares how we feel. But when I make a post on social media, which on my page, and you look at my 5,000 friends, it's not definitely not the back to blue or the patriotic. So... Even if I make a post and I empathizing with police death, their people would never even see that post, you know, because I have a, a particular audience that definitely understand where I'm coming from. They know that I'm not a brother who is somebody who wants violent, uh, violence or anything of that nature. They know I'm a brother who is serious about our people determine our own destiny and getting liberation. So you mentioned this unity and solidarity. How do we do that? Ever since, since you've seen everything, you got to go, you know, in, in the jail. You got to see what the brothers dealing with there. How, how do we do that? Well, we do that by focusing on the things that we have in common, not the things that we disagree with. If we if we have in common that you know black people need to be defended and we need to provide protection for our people, then that's what we focus on. Okay, or let's just say we have in common that we believe that black economics is a, a thriving source um, for our community. Then we just need to focus on that. I think a lot of times um, black people, we're not patient with each other. And sometimes we can be very dogmatic um, with our ideologies and our approach about going, you know, going about going about getting liberation and justice. And so. You know, when we have, you know, we struggle with cognitive dissonance, you know, even with being conscious. Because, you know, if I'm a Hebrew and this guy's a Moor, I'm not, you know, we both might be talking about good things for the community, but we're not hearing each other, you know. I don't think we're hearing that, hey, he's a Hebrew, he's a Moor, 
he's RBG, he's this, he's that. But, you know, what is going to trickle down and affect things in our community. And that's what it's about. And so, you know, solidarity, one has to be a culture that has to be continuously promoted in our um, resistance. You know, this is something that has to be in all our heads. We have to uh, constantly promote this. And people who are, are who are work against us being solidarity, um, we must give them, you know, constructive criticism. And that's the biggest issue uh, amongst solidarity, amongst black groups. It's not knowing how to criticize each other in a constructive way, you know, um, our, maybe our intentions may be constructive, but our approach may be more destructive. And we have to, you know, have ways to go about things, how to communicate and things of that nature. And just to be honest with you, you know, nobody never taught us anything. You know, we didn't have generations to say, hey, I'm handing this off, this organization off to you. A lot of the organizations that are around today, that are on the ground and doing things, was not around 40 years ago. You know, and so there are young people who are out there and we're just figuring things out as we go. You know, none of us are perfect. Numbers was raised to be um, organizers or activists. It's just we jumped in there and that's something we have committed to do. And so amongst this struggle, you know, and that's why it's called a struggle, because one, we're going to struggle with each other as organizers, activists and et cetera. Two, we're going to struggle with our community with trying to bring about a change within the community. And three, we're going to struggle with white supremacy capitalism and imperialism so it's a big struggle and most importantly we struggle with ourselves as individuals you know of trying to make sure that we're not being liberal you know we're our own political ideologies and so we have to be honest with ourselves we have to be honest that none of us have the overall game plan but if we bring our pieces together we can uh, create that that's something I agree with. I believe that we're too tribal. Yes. And, and that tribalism is just what's hurting us a lot in the community. Mm-hmm. And, you, oh, your person is a Christian, or maybe they say they're not. Or, like you say, Hebrew is your light, nation is Islam more, 5%. Everybody's different things, and they want to claim that. But at the end of the day, when white supremacy look at us, we all just one big uh, black mm-hmm. person that they hate. Right. It's just that simple when it comes to the white supremacists. So I, I'm with you on that 100 um, percent. We need to stop all that. And I understand why we do it, because our whole you know, identity was stripped from us. Right. And right. we were given a white man's identity, a white man's name. So we're trying to you know, find ourselves. Um, one thing I wanted to ask was out of this whole process, everything that happened, you know, they run up on you, putting you in, in jail. You came out of jail, you're trying, you know, getting your life back together again, still helping out the community. Do you feel that it was something that you had to go through? Um, yes, I, I definitely do, you know. And, you know, before I got arrested, you know, I was watching um, the documentary. I can't remember. 
it's it's gonna come back to me. But I was watching a documentary about you know men being locked up, and I just had a deep feeling that I was gonna experience that. It's, I've been to jail, but I've never did time. You know, I've just been to jail for very petty things. You know, um, tickets not being paid. You know, little silly warrants. But I've never really did time and. Yeah, that's what I was watching. I was watching the Khalif Browder um, mm. documentary. And, you know, when I was watching that documentary, I, I got very emotional. And in the midst of me being emotional, I felt that, uh, in you know, I felt the intuition, you know, making me feel that I was going to be going through that process soon. You know, and a lot of times my intuitions are very accurate when I do have them. I don't have them too often. Just like I had another intuition when, you know, I was right before I was going to be arraigned, you know, for my bun. I'm, I'm sorry, not arraigned, but my bun hearing. Um, I had, a intu you know, intuition. After speaking with my attorney and him telling me, like, hey, man, more likely, man, you're going to do probably a minimum six years, you know, on this case. And I'm surprised, like, I'm thinking at the most I'm going to do six months, you know. And, you know, the int intuition told me, like, hey, you're not going to really do no time, you know. So um, it's been pretty accurate. And that intuition has pretty much you know, came true, you know, and it came true the morning of December 12th, 2017, when me and my son was in the apartment sleep around 5 a.m. I woke up, I turned the heat on in the apartment because we usually get up around six and, you know, I definitely wanted the heat on so we can definitely, uh, you know, get about our day. And my son um, was actually my adopted son. Um, he was 16 years old um, you know they kicked in the door um, I was halfway asleep um, when I went to the living room my son was in the living room and pretty much he told me that you know the military was at the door you know so I was confused one it still felt like a dream you know two I'm thinking like why is my door getting kicked in because all I've been doing for the last couple of weeks is working excessive overtime and going to basketball games, uh, my son basketball game on the weekend or my other son wrestling match. So I'm like, you know, what's going on? So I'm thinking that it's possibly they kicked in the wrong door, you know. And, you know, I yelled out to the police officer. You know, they couldn't see me. I couldn't see them from the angle, my part, the way my apartment is. Kind of like how this one is. Now, if you're at the door, you can't see me if I'm here. You know, um, you know, I'm yelling to the police officer, who are you here looking for? And they said my, you know, full government name, you know, really blew my mind. Because I'm like, you know, what can they be bothering me about? You know, I hadn't did an open carry patrol at that time for, you know, at, at least you know, months. So I and two, I don't do anything illegal on my open carry patrol. So I just figured they wanted to question me, but I'm like, why would they kick down my door, you know, to question me? 
And, you know, I asked what were the charges. They did not want to tell me the charges, you know. And so when I eventually came out, I saw um, a whole bunch of guys running around with either dressed like they were part of SEAL Team 6 or wearing these jackets that said, um, you know, Joint Terrorist um, Task Force, JTTF, on the back of their jackets. And, you know, there are individuals dressed all type of ways, getting out of all type of vehicles from all angles. You know, they, you know, they came in everything from a smart car to an SUV to do the arrest. And it was a lot of cars and they actually shut down my apartments for a whole hour. Um, the apartments that I was living in at that time. Um, which is, you know, 30 minutes away from here on the other side of town. Um, nobody was not able to come in the apartments or leave or come in or out their door. Um, they shut down the apartments before they even, of course, kicked in my door, you know. Did they drew guns on you? Oh, yes. They drew guns on me and my son. You know, they made us you know, walk to them while hands up out the apartment, um, shining very bright, high LED lights into our faces, you know, which was um, attached to AR-15s and M4s. So you're coming toward them with your hands up. Your son's scared. I know he's scared. Mm -hmm. They don't care. No. They just dress up like they call of duty. Yes, pretty much. Literally. That's basically what you're saying. And so you get to them where they, they arrest you in a peaceful manner or they slam you or what are they doing? Um, they arrest me in a peaceful manner, you know, because um, one, they knew who I was when they was arresting me. And they knew that it was going to get a little attention. So I'm sure. And then, two, I didn't resist. You know, I didn't feel there wasn't any reason to resist. Now, you know, if I felt like, you know, it was a situation where they had something on me to lock me up for an indefinite amount of time or if I felt like they was there to murder me, you know, it would have been a different reaction. But, you know, when they kicked in my door, they never came in. You know, they just stood outside and not even really close by the door. I would say he stood 10 feet away from the door and yelled in. So they felt probably you were armed and... Well, know, they knew I was armed. Well, and since you were former, you know, military, they probably wanted well, to see you. Yes, they've been tracking me. You know, they, they've been mm -hmm. tracking all the ammo I've been buying, the magazines, different stocks, different weapons, um, you know, other tactical gear. Um, I'm sure they've been following, you know, the things I watch on YouTube, the things I Google, you know, my Facebook post, uh, follow me in real life. They follow me to Detroit. They stole my luggage in Detroit. Um, yeah, so they knew what they was dealing with and they knew that I was somebody that was level headed. You know, I'm not as they knew I'm not the extremist. That they try to present me as. They know me for what I am. Also, you know, they pulled up in Humvees, military Humvees, with um, mounted um, B 
belt-fed weapons attached to the top of them. You know, and these the same desert tan Humvees that you see in Iraq, you know. So that's why my son thought it was the military. Because the way they was dressed, they, you know, when you see regular um, local Dallas police SWAT, you know, you, you know them when you see them. You know, the way they was dressed and, you know, the way they're dressed and things of that nature. The way these guys were dressed looked like they came straight from Afghanistan. They didn't look like urban police. <laughs> it looked like straight military. And, you know, I know because I am prior military, you know. But, you know, they was, you know, wearing green um, and, you know, green camo type clothing, you know, and. You know, they came, you know, they came pretty geared up. They had everything from Kevlar helmets to black jackets to M4s with, um, you know, they had, you know, guys holding, you know, bulletproof shields, um, you know. So it was this whole situation was definitely an overkill, you know, because even the weapons that I had in my house were not weapons that, you know, was something that would call for that. You know, these are basic weapons that average American would have in their house. You know, it ain't like, you know, they found any weapons that was altered or any bump stock magazine. You know, I mean, bump stock weapons or anything of that nature that make it look like that I was possibly planning for a a mass shooting or killing police officers or whatever their concept or BIE would do. I don't know. But I'm glad you mentioned mass shootings. Now, <coughs> I haven't seen any brothers that have gun clubs or any brothers that's doing open patrol. Um, I haven't seen them doing the mass shootings, but the ones I keep seeing doing the mass shootings are white males. Matter of fact, the one in Thousand Oaks, California, he was a former Marine actually. At just at the country western bar, but yet they don't track them. Well, you know, I think they do track them. I don't think they harass them and arrest them like they harass and arrest me and other brothers. But you know, a lot of people are being tracked and don't know. And a lot of people who have nonviolent tendencies are being tracked. You know as terrorists and that's the thing about it you know since i've been arrested i've been able to really look more and more into this black identity extremist thing and understand how the fbi is able to do this and they do this through a thing a concept that they call domain management where they have actual neighborhoods mapped out and within the uh, major cities of America based off of race, you know? And so obviously the FBI function as some form of racial surveillance. And to me, they're just straight up race soldiers. Now you got to experience it firsthand because we don't have any white identity extremist labels. And if you read the document, Anybody could be a black identity extremist. Right. If you want, you know, your own schools, they talked about in that document, you promoting one of your own banks, mm -hmm. your own, you know, city governments, mm -hmm. institutions, 
Um, it said nothing about even committing violence. It just right. meant that if you just want those things, that means any black person who advocates for the black community and want to see them do no different than what we see Chinatown or, or you know any other group have theirs. And that's not an identity extremist, but the moment we do it, and all of a sudden it's a problem. And it seems like they want to hold on to us for dear life. They don't want us to do for ourselves. No, no, no. They don't want us to do for ourselves. We do for ourselves, then we'll be able to develop institutions that will challenge their institutions. And not only challenge their institutions, but demand the reparations that we're owed. And they, they know if we develop our political parties, that conversation will definitely, at some point in time, will eventually have to take place. So if they keep us, because they owe us a lot, you know, and, you know, we have to, you know, but dude, but the thing about it, we're so disorganized, you know, um, you know, blacks, we're classified as two so many different things under race. You have some black people calling themselves Latinas. You have some blacks calling themselves white. Some calling themselves Indians. And some saying they're not black. You know, it just... And so if they did decide reparations, you know, who would they give it to? And who will be actually considered as black? Because you know they'll find some way for white people to say, well, hey, you know... Um, in slavery, uh, um, you know, back in the slavery day, my great-great-grandfather was one part African-American slave, you know, a certain part African-American slave, so I should get son too. You know, so it, it's a big conversation that could come out of us being organized and getting on one accord and things of that nature. And then, too, they just don't want to see us determine our own destiny. Because if we develop our own institution, our own institution will have enough resources and enough effort to be able to investigate the FBI, to investigate the DEA, to investigate IRS, to investigate and be able to find our own conclusions, you know? So, you know, they don't want that. They want us to just keep being happy with our trinkets and going to work every day and, and, and smiling and fighting each other on social media. Yeah, they love that. Now, after experiencing all that, and, and did you ever think in your mind, you know what, man, I want to go to Africa? Yes, yes. I, you know, when I was locked up, you know, a lot of the federal inmates who especially, have, you know, this their second or third time experiencing their incident, um, they was advising me to go lead the country because they were telling me, you know, the federal government does not like to take losses. And what they do is they like to sit dormant and watch you until they can find something they can get you with, even if it's way down the line. It might come through IRS. It might come through Federal Housing Authority. It could come from so many different ways of them hitting you with charges and dragging you right back into the system all over again. And guess what? If they do hit me with charges, let's just say uh, we see your house alone that that you're about to get um, one of your documents don't look right. So we're going to hit you with some type of conspiracy. Well, guess what? They're going to mention, hey, on his Facebook page on this day, he said this and this. So we can deny him bond again, <laughs> you know, and they're going to do that. 
You know, because they know they can. So, based off of what the inmates told you, is it something, not saying that you will, is it something that you have considered? Yes, I definitely have considered leaving the country. And, you know, currently I've been doing so much reconnaissance on Africa and the different regions, which I've done, you know, study Africa, but really for us, you know, relocating and actually living there and what resources are there, you know, for me to uh, transition without dealing with culture shock or culture fatigue, you know. But that's something I am working on embarking on. And that, that is a goal within the next five to ten years. Now, there's, there are some people that say, in, you know, in our community, well, why don't he stay and try to fight that? What do you say to those people? Well, I, I definitely understand that. Um, I, I see it from both ways. And I'm just type of brother. I'm willing to put myself in other people's shoes. Now, you have one way you say, hey, brother, you need to preserve yourself um, and your family and your life by leaving the country. And so I can definitely understand that, you know, um, because what good I am to the people locked up in prison for the rest of my life. What good I am to my family or even to myself, you know. And so I can definitely understand that. Um, also, as revolutionaries, it's our responsibility to struggle, you know, for a change. But even though you may not even see the change within your lifetime, that's something that has to be done. And I think one of the biggest problems that we've been having as black men is the generation the previous generation is passing this burden to the next generation. That burden is white supremacy, you know. And so, you know, Che Guevara said, you know, I envy you American revolutionaries because you're within the belly of the beast. And so what he was talking about is that the best way to destroy America and destroy white supremacy and the military industrial complex is from within, not from without. You know, because if we, you know, just my, you know, if we, you know, migrate, uh, uh, you know, repatriate Africa, you know, um, if and let's say a big number of us did that, decided to do that, maybe let's say 50,000 and we, we created a colony, you know, well, who says that that colony would not be attacked? by African warlords who work for white money, you know, so, um, and you know who's going to give them that? The same FBI that came and arrested me, you know, they're going to do it through the CIA, give that money, you know, and, and make things like that happen, you know. Um, another thing that's that vaguely talked about is white militia groups, private white militaries being in Africa. The majority of the world's military for profit organizations are based out of Africa and they're European and they're operating in Africa right now as we speak. So before I you know, wrap this up, um, we thank you definitely for joining us. Do you have any last words for the people that could be watching is people we watch not only here in America, but throughout the world, mm -hmm. uh, throughout the diaspora. What would you tell them? Well, I just want to uh, go back to my statement about 
being unapologetic about my previous statements. You know, um, one, I do not feel that I should become passive or tuck my tail in or bite my tongue on social media. Um, anybody who follows my page know that on a, I very rarely even make posts um, giving negative criticism directly towards individuals. And so when I do make a post about police and not empathizing their death, that's not something I do on a daily basis. That's not who I am. That's, that's not what consumes my timeline when you go on my Facebook page. What consumes it is things as, you know, program or working with youth. What consumes it is working in uh, community gardens or feeding the homeless or areas within our community that has a high black on black crime fracticide area doing open um, open carry patrols and things of that nature. That's what consumes my Facebook page. You know, not, you know, hate rhetoric or anything of that nature. So, you know, that's just something I definitely wanted to be able to get that out there because, you know, a lot of people is like, oh, I bet you're going to stay off Facebook now. I just want to say, hell no, I won't. You know, and if anything, uh, 2019, uh, I, I plan on going a little bit harder in the paint. Going harder in the paint, not go back down. For whatever, back was never, you know. And I refuse to let these FBI pigs intimidate me and turn me into a coward to where I reverse my stance or become more passive on my approach. You know, it's nothing extreme about self-preservation, you know, and if the FBI want to label us extreme just because we want to survive and live, then who's the real extremist? And that's the real question we have to ask ourselves. So for your family mm -hmm. and everything they've been through with this um, and you're taking that stance of 2019, correct? Mm -hmm. Um, how, how do you feel about that? My family supports me, you know, um, my family know it's nothing wrong about what I do and my stance, you know, and they're with me a hundred percent, you know, this is, you know, this is bigger than me and my family. This is about black people in America and black people all over the world as a whole, you know, so, you know, my, the inconvenience the small inconvenience that I have experienced and my family experienced is nothing like the inconvenience of Momia Abu Jamal and what he and his family experienced, Matulu Shakur. Uh, you know, um, and, and so many political prisoners, you know, that are currently still locked up today. And, and there is no victim for a crime that they have done. That can be proven, you know, and so there's going to be losses in this, you know, and sometimes you might go to jail for something you didn't do for stand up for what's right. Well, unfortunately, the generation prior to me passed this cup to me. So we have to take this and we have to go through this process. 
And if we don't go through this process, then your grandkids going to go through the process, you know. And so at some point, just like George Jackson uh, brother, uh, Jonathan Jackson said, you know, the sooner begun, the sooner done. All right. With that said, brother, definitely thank you for your time today. I really appreciate you getting your words out and uh, letting the community know how you feel. Letting the community know you're okay. A lot of people was wondering, you know, they heard you got out, didn't know how you was doing, seeing a few interviews. And um, we gracious you allowed us to do this interview today. Well, well, I'm honored to be on this show. You know, I support this show. And it's ironic because, you know, right before I got arrested, I binge watched a lot of your episodes. And you know how YouTube is. If you watch a couple episodes and it just naturally comes into the feed. So, you know, I was watching a lot of episodes and you covering different things in Houston and stuff like that. And it is ironic that I got arrested and and I'm, you know, able to be on your platform. So I thank you, brother, for giving me this opportunity and, and sharing your platform for and allow me to tell my story.